Chmaitsky, everyone. Good morning or good afternoon. It is uh, Emily Washings here with War Cry Podcast and the team, as well as a guest. Today, we're going to be talking about MMIW and M uh, MMIP and probate. And our intent today is to learn about probate and the Bureau of Indian Affairs as it pertains to natives and in particular missing and murdered indigenous people. Now, this can be a sensitive topic for some as it obviously uh, can bring up past things that have come up with regards to loss. We have uh, an, a special guest here to talk about some of those steps and process just to be in a level of uh, give information. We can often, when we're in a state of loss, it's very hard to be able to follow a lot of different steps that pertain to um, things that need to get done. So our intention today is to clear up confusion and be informative about um, this information. So I wanna officially open this with a welcome to this episode of War Cry Podcast, season two, episode three. We are an all native run podcast discussing data, events, stories, issues, and historical connections about Northwest missing and murdered natives. Thank you for joining us for this episode. My name is Emily Washings and co-hosts today are Patsy Whitefoot, Robin Pibashi, and Lucy Smartlauer. And our guest today is Nicole Pibashi. I also um, want to begin with just an opening about what the Bureau of Indian Affairs is as it relates to probate. And then we'll turn it over to Nicole to introduce herself. So the source that I'm reading from is the Bureau of Indian Affairs.gov. The primary mission of the Division of Probate is to compile inventories of Indian trust assets and family information and to coordinate the timely distribution of trust assets. With the Office of Hearings and Appeals, Land Titles and Records Office and the Office of the Special Trustee. Now, as you can tell, that is very wordy, very technical information. And so that's why I'm so happy to have our guests along with our team is so happy to have our guests here today to kind of explain a little bit about what, why is the federal government involved in, you know, holdings and who, you know, how things get transferred down. Um, so Nicole, I'll turn it over to you to be introduced. Introduce yourself. Hi, my name's Nicole Pibishi. I'm actually Robin's sister, little sister. Um, and I work for um, the Division of Probate. I've worked, I've had about four years of experience doing this. Um, and when I started here, I had no idea what probate was, um, or even how the flow of things were connected and all the different offices through the Bureau of Indian Affairs, um, have a hand in dividing land and Indian, um, individual Indian monies, um, connected to that land for members. And I did want to pull up or um, state the definition of an Indian through the in, um, through APRA, which is the American Indian Probate Reform Act of 2006. An Indian is a lineal descendant within two degrees. 
and so that means um, an enrolled member, if they have children that aren't enrolled, so like their children and their grandchildren would be within two degrees. So they're can still considered an Indian through um, APRA in the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Um, but I guess I, I also do have a connection with um, MMIP and MMIW. Uh, my grandmother on my father's side was actually a victim of MMI, um, MMIW uh, in the early 50s. My dad was a very young child, about five years old when he lost his mother. They never really um, figured out how she died, but she was um, considered murdered on her death certificate. And um, I guess that's why I follow your guys' podcast myself and any kind of movement that has to do with MMIW, MMIP, because it does hit home for myself and for my sister Robin and my two other sisters um, and my extended relatives. But I'm glad to be here today and I hope I can answer your guys' questions the best I can. <laughs> Yeah, so um, I'm so sorry to hear that heaviness, you know, come from your family, you know, that your family carries and that, you know, you do your best to be informed. I think out of all the people that um, we know outside of this podcast, you're somebody that follows a lot of true crime uh, podcasts and mm -hmm. cases and, you yeah. know, we value is a real resource. I mean, if there's a podcast that we need to know about that has to do with true crime or MMIP, I will turn to Nicole's Facebook to see what she shared. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, but it's, it's, it is, it does bring a lot more to it when you have such a personal connection to these. And I'm wondering, um, I don't know if we're going to go into the questions specifically yet, but I know that you had wanted to talk about what happens when somebody goes missing and they have what's called trust land. And maybe just explain okay. a little bit about what trust land is. Like, what does that even mean for our non-native audience? Um, okay. Um, so probate is basically, um, you know, someone who passes away, a Native, Native American that passes away and they have heirs, like their children, um, their grandchildren, or um, if they don't have children, it could be their siblings, or if they do a will, they can be, um, they can pass down their land holdings to those people. Um, and what trust land is, I always compare it to stocks, like, so you buy a stock and you own a share in it. So there could be like a 80 acre allotment in my name, but I only own a share. I don't own the whole 80 acres. Um, I own like one fourth or one um, third. I own a share along with other people with an undivided interest. So it just means that it's not broken up into sections. We all own a share, we all receive profit from like grazing um, income or uh, like orchards or stuff like that. Um, where I currently hold land in Oklahoma from my father, um, it's oil and gas. So the minerals that are connected to the land, I receive compensation from them 
using my, using the shares, um, using my shares of the allotment and stuff like that. So going back to when trust land was divided, it um, it's basically when the government came along and gave each person within a reservation an allotment. Like you can have this uh, 80 acres right here to build your home, like make crops, like grow corn, raise cattle. And so from that, they were called original allottees. They were the original person to receive that allotment. And from then on, their children and their children, and even now it's like their great, great grandchildren that are still connected to that land from that original allottee back in like during treaty signings and stuff like that. Um, so with that being said, every, every case is different. Every um, person who owns land has a different situation uh, and every case has, to, it's almost like putting a puzzle together. You have to look at the bigger picture, like, okay, so did they have a will? Do they have lineal descendants? Do they have siblings? Do they have parents? Depending on, doesn't matter what age you are, it, there's always going to be um, a route we have to take to pass on your land. Um, and sometimes it doesn't even go that far. It goes back to the tribe. Um, if you have no lineal descendants, if you don't have, um, you know, I, I guess it's like you don't have enough land to pass down. And I guess it's just every situation is different. I'm sorry to um, get make it more confusing, <laughs> but um, talking about people who go missing. Um, or victims of, you know, being a homicide victim. And uh, I guess from my experience working in probate for the last four years, I've done quite a few uh, probates where there is someone victim of homicide. And they, these cases honestly get held up because of the situation, the criminal situation on these cases. Um, like for instance, if they if someone was murdered and they don't know who murdered them, they don't have anyone in custody. Um, there is no way we can prove that the probable heirs to their estate had anything to do with it. So, with that being said, we cannot move forward unless we can roll them out. And um, oh. missing on the case of missing people there's um, the situation of, you know, proving that they aren't out there, like there's seven years presumptual death, like we have to, that the families literally have to wait seven years to rule that out, to rule, all right, that no one has made contact with them for seven years, or even longer, um, no one's seen them, heard from them, um, and they, they just have to wait that long. And then the coroner, depending on where you are, I believe it's the same everywhere, but the coroner of your county has to, all right, the, this is the evidence that we've been presented with that no one has seen this person. So we have to 
do a death certificate for a presumption, presumptive death. And once we get that um, in our office or even the tribe notifies a probate office, we have to, then we can finally start their case. And it's basically the, the same thing. Like we have to rule out the family and it's just a big circle sometimes, but um, it's good to try to work with, or well, I guess from talking from my experience, I try to work with the county prosecutors or county coroners or county sheriff's office, tribal police to um, get these reports and find out the knowledge that they have so we can move forward and help these families that you know, they don't know where to start. And sometimes they won't release information like this to families because they're still an open case. Um, they haven't closed the case because it's it goes cold. And it just sits and sits and sits until someone actually solves it or um, sometimes it has, it doesn't get solved, sadly. Yeah, there's such a level of complexity in all of the different cases. I think that, you know, those of us that are familiar with the process can, you know, sympathize with that position and, you know, trying to talk in generalities about things. Oftentimes when you've gone through probate, there's things that are one or two years later that you didn't even know about or came up and you're having to deal with it. Um, I want to yes. turn to my uh, co-host, Robin, to ask uh, a question. Uh, and maybe, you know, get a little bit more information about this uh, probate and MMIP. Okay. Robin, you're on mute. Thank you very much. So, hi, Nicole. Good to see you. Hi. <laughs> My little sister. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, I'm so glad you, you came on. Um, and yes, you know, this is something that we are definitely connected with. Um, and I think Patsy had said in one of her interviews, it's like, it's not a club that people want to be a part of. And that was something that really resonated with me um, because, you know, in terms of like our family experience, you know, that happened before we were born. And and it was definitely a different time. So, um, you know, with that yeah. in mind, thinking about perhaps the processes that our family would have to have gone through back in the 50s, I guess the kind of like a more simpler thing, uh, maybe a two part is like one, I'd like to hear a little bit about your experiences uh, in your job. Just as somebody who works with the community, you had talked about seeing the, the historical and fam, familial ties of people who come in and how you just kind of get to see a little bit of the backstage of all of that. But also just what mm -hmm. do you wish you knew before you got started, you know, working in probate? Um, I guess my, my, one of my favorite experiences working in probate is actually reading a lot of history um, like fa family history and literal in cases that set precedents throughout Indian country. And you read those cases and you see how much families, Indian families have fought for the right to be um, 
present and acknowledge or in you know given knowledge about um land and what they can inherit and um instead of just having it pushed pushed through um there are a lot of cases that i've read um that are inspiring you know that native people are strong that we don't take no for an answer we want to know we that's our right and again going back to when um our father experienced um losing his mother our grandma back then i've i've noticed a lot of the government didn't hire native americans um to work within these offices for the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And it was literally just pushed through, like just another case. It didn't matter if they were a victim of homicide or they were missing. Um, a lot of it was just, all right, here's another case, push it through, hand down the land to their children or whoever. Um, and there's a lot of different laws from different like eras, I guess, how probate has changed and molded and how the Bureau of Indian Affairs has tried to help keep land within families or within Indian country instead of you know just going back to the government or losing it or you know selling it. Um, and a lot of that has to go back to Cobell, the Cobell settlement, and what Eloise Cobell has done for um, the country, for Indian country, and that's really inspiring. One thing I wish I learned coming into probate was all the reading, <laughs> all of the reading and self um, knowledge that I had to pick up on my own and the ability to like acknowledge the hurt in families when they come in here. You can't talk to people um, as if they're just another case on my desk. They're a family and this is their loved one because I've lost people myself and it's it's hard. And especially when someone is um, murdered or missing, it's even twice as hard. It's twice as hard to help those families and you have to have compassion. No one told me, you know, open your heart and open your mind to helping families. It doesn't matter who they are, if you know them or not. Um, that's one thing I did learn on my own was to have more compassion and to be more grounded with um, the Native community here and um, also trying to acknowledge the family ties between this community or within your local Indian community, how everyone's tied together. This is so-and-so and they're related to so-and-so and it just goes on and on and on. But it's, that's one thing I really did like. Um, coming in here is the the history of our people is tied through our land and our lineage is tied through our land. Um, did you want to respond to that, Robin? Um, no, just uh, I'm really glad to hear that. And I'm really glad to hear that that's you know, something that also is not taught in colleges or schools or any kind of institution on how to deal with those situations. And I, I, I just want to say, I'm so proud of you, my little sister, you know, you do so much for your community. <laughs> <Thank> you. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Thank <laughs> we you. call her the baby. I'm gonna say here live. It's like she's yeah. the baby. I'm like I just oh, always, no. <laughs> I'm so proud of her and like I all the work it. she does and the work because I do see uh, people in the community and you know they said oh you're you know Nicole helped or you know anything like that it just makes me really proud. Thank you and I'm glad that you take everything in a good way because I know it is like Patsy had said before we start recording, it's heavy you know and it's sensitive. And yeah. Thank you. It is. It is. Yep. The people are tied to the land and you're tied to the people. Um, let's turn to Lucy for mm -hmm. her question. Hi, Nicole. So um, Hi. thank you for sharing and being here. Um, I, I yeah. do have a response in regards to what you were talking about earlier, just really quickly. And um, I just want to make sure that I'm understanding correctly that the burden of responsibility is primarily on the families. Is that what I'm hearing to, to show that their individual or their loved one is missing? And so during that seven years, when they don't know what's happening with that individual, they're responsible for everything that's happening. Like they're responsible for like obtaining the reports and they're responsible for, you know, tracking when the last contact or the last view, you know, sighting of them was, or, you know, is that, I'm understanding that correctly? Nicole, you're on mute. Oh, sorry. I got disconnected. But going back to that about missing, missing individuals, I would have to say yes, but also they, um, because personally, my, like where I work, I can't help anyone until they are considered, until I receive a death notice, uh, like a, an official death notice or um, some kind of like death certificate or something like that. But one thing I do encourage families to do is document, you know, ask like, all right, um, it's year 2021, they've been missing four or five months, still haven't heard anything, you know, even just monthly, you know, showing that, you know, you are making an active effort to try and locate them or working with your local police department or, um, the, um, even going as far as like tribal, um, tribal police and maybe even the federal, um, Bureau of Investigation, um, or even asking family and friends, hey, have you seen them? Have you heard from them? And it, like even just documentation, like journaling, it, I, I believe that will also help bring your case forward when you do have to do a, ask for a presumptive death. Um, and it's hard to even just think about it that constantly because I know some people um, just try not to think about it for a while because it's hard enough. They worry enough and they don't want, that's one thing I've noticed some native people do is they just uh, put it away for a while because it's too hard to think about. And it is, um, I, I also believe counseling helps a lot too, or um, trying to find a caseworker um, through DSHS, I believe would also help you know, because they track 
um, health records and stuff like that also. Well, that's actually a really perfect segue into my next question. And you have mentioned some of them already, um, like the FBI, our um, DSHS caseworkers. So what are some other national organizations or programs that people should be aware of while they're going through this process? Um, I encourage people to go see the Northwest Justice System. Um, they actually do help a lot of um, individuals. They also do wills for people. Um, well, free for elders, but they also do wills for everyone else. But I do encourage people to try to reach out to them if and what they suggest, because I bet they have um, their own ties and connections on how to help people with the situation. Great. Thank you, Nicole. Yeah. Um, I really love the helpful information and insight about documentation that you had regarding families and even, you know, all the information about presumptive death. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's very hard information to hear and I'm, I'm sure an even harder process to go through. Uh, I want to turn it to Patsy for her either question or and or insight as um, she has gone through uh, this process. Yeah. And Patsy, you're on mute. Thank you very much. And I'm so pleased that you're here, Nicole. Um, wonderful information that you're sharing with us to build the awareness of families who uh, may be going through this issue. And you're exactly right that sometimes families may put this on hold because you don't know what's going on, you know, in the loss of your family member, or even if, if an individual has been murdered, because sometimes, you know, in terms of our communication with the coroner, um, you know, the coroner might say one thing, but based on what you've seen or, or witnessed, you, you're thinking another thing. So this is a very um, complicated topic, however, very necessary just because of the nature of who we are as uh, Native people and who have this, um, this unique relationship with the federal government, in this case, the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And so I'll, I often say it's like this love-hate relationship that we have, mm -hmm. you know, with the federal government, just simply because of our experiences mm -hmm. uh, in this case with probate, but it could also be, you know, other areas that we might talk about, such as, um, you know, the boarding schools, which we've talked about previously. <clears throat> mm -hmm. I do want to follow up on the uh, one comment that you made about the Northwest Justice Project, and I did work with them um, when I worked in uh, the superintendent's office several years ago and continue mm -hmm. to work with them. I want to highlight uh, that they're going to be here uh, working with uh, elders uh, here on in Yakima. And so that meeting is going to be on August 4th and you can call them to set up appointment about these kinds of issues. As a matter of fact, I just had a conversation with the, the state representative who I've been working with uh, for several years on native education. So I just wanna share that phone number so people have it. Um, because once you said that, I thought, oh my goodness, Northwest Justice is gonna be setting up appointments on this very topic. Uh, it, the phone number in Yakima is 
5744. And uh, again, that's 5744234. Uh, they just uh, recently established this office here in Yakima. I think it's um, part-time. However, the major office is in Seattle. So it's important to know these kinds of resources that are out there that can support family members in many ways, as you said, one being with, with wills and those kinds of things, which are which is important as well. And then also I'm just thinking about the role of family in, you know, in your families, you hey, you may have family members that are uh, more willing to take on some of the this type of work that needs to occur. I was going to say mundane work, but it needs to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I have a sister who was that individual who did all of that. And I'm so thankful for her, just, you know, like you and Robin who work together. And then the communication that uh, podcast members have with you, because you need to have a support in whatever it is that you're doing in, with regard to probate. And just for your information and for our, our audience as well, I've been working with the National Indian Women's Resource Center, um, providing recommendations uh, for family members to follow. And, um, and so this is one of those areas that, again, there's a need for family members to have an advocate. And so what we recommend is that they have a family member or a trusted friend that's willing to be there to support them through all of these steps. And one of those steps, of course, would be, you know, probate issues as well. Um, and, mm-hmm. and so this information I think is very, very timely for us to, to have. And it could be very technical. And as we said at the beginning, very emotional at the same time. But I just like to Um, you know, you, I think you said it correctly when this is information you didn't learn about. Um, And I think that this is what we we need to have more in-depth conversations about this, like we are here in this podcast, because I'm an educator and have been, you know, teaching about, you know, history and with teachers as well. And so this is one area that, um, you know, I don't often get an opportunity to address, but if we really took a look at the whole role of being just native. Uh, um, we, I, I was in a conversation just the other day saying when we're born, you know, as Yakima or whatever we're born is, as a native person, we are automatically born political. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just, yeah. just because of the nature of who we are as uh, having this relationship with the federal government and uh, just a part of, you know, not only uh, the treaty, but our inherent rights, but also the role of the federal government in terms of the constitution and various laws. And you brought up the one regarding uh, the General Allotment Act, you know, of 1867. But prior to that, we had the Indian Removal Act of 1830. So when we start thinking about, you know, the intent of, of the government to remove us as people, to me, the issue that we're addressing with missing and murdered Indigenous women and people is also along that same line about continuing that removal, but in another form with the murdering and um, the, the taking our family members uh, and continuing to remove us. And so for me, that's a major issue. And so I'm glad that, you know, that 
with your employment with the Bureau of Indian Affairs, that, that's something that you saw, because it's true, we do have to um, do our own education in many, many ways. Um, and mm -hmm. so I was so pleased to hear you talk about this relationship that you've also built with the land. I just want you to people to know that um, our longhouse is gotten ready for our our huckleberry feast and so that's yeah. where i'm going mm -hmm. and so um, mm -hmm. on sunday we're going to have a drive-through <laughs> a feast uh, in white oh. swan <laughs> so mm -hmm. just want you know to you to all know that um in about noon but um this relationship i think is important for us to continue addressing this unique relationship that we have not only with the federal government but also that relationship with the land and so as you were talking you know I was thinking for myself I've had to really place my sister in that in terms of the land um, you know for me that's been healing to know that she is a part of the land and mm -hmm. that that our land is very sacred and I think that um through policies like this, uh, there's a whole education process that, you know, we need to share with one another. And because I just was at the longhouse, my first time I'd been to our longhouse since the pandemic, um, uh, Tuesday evening, it was very healing for me. So, so thank you for sharing all of that with us. I, I mean, I was trying to think of the question, but every time I was coming up with a question, you were answering my question. <laughs> So, <laughs> I was thinking about, you know, this process and helping to make it easier for family. And so just this discussion has been also validating uh, because of the, the technical aspects of dealing with allotment, when you're dealing with allotment, you're, you're thinking about, you know, that the, the formal term estate of the land. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have to yeah. think you have to go back and forth and think about, well, this is where um, the policy of assimilation is going on is to assimilate me into this. But on the other hand, I'm saying, no, no, Huckleberry mm -hmm. Feast. <laughs> you know, this battle goes on in inside yeah. of you. And so I think I just want to say to um, the podcast team um, and Robin, this is a wonderful topic for us to be having with one another and i'm sure once i'm done here i'll have questions as well but <laughs> just want to say yeah. thank you for the work that you do it's important thank, thank you, so you. Much. yeah yeah and i wanted to touch base on like things i've learned outside of work on how you know our well just mainly at the longhouse how they say that um we are born and then we go back to the land and we're reborn you know, into this earth again. And that's how I feel is that we're literally tied to the land on paper and spiritually, mentally. I know when I go to the mountains and stuff, it, it I feel so much better. Like there's more clarity when I come back. Yeah, I did like that though. <laughs> yeah. Um... I really appreciate that insight. I think having and hearing the dialogue between um, Patsy and Nicole just now just really is going to be informative for people and families that are in that dynamic and in that situation in that waiting uh, period. Um, it just seems like there's a lot of grief 
that's held in that process. Um, mm -hmm. I want to just turn to uh, back to our graph a little bit. And, you know, you had sent uh, a few of your talking points and I want to kind of reflect on that. Um, how long does it take? So we see, uh, thank you, Robin has pulled up the Department of Interior's probate process. There's 12 different steps. So for those of you that are, again, are unfamiliar with the federal government and our political status as Native Americans, American Indians, um, again, is a still a term that we use because it's tied to um, the Constitution, it's tied to federal documents. So we still use American Indian, Alaska Native, um, even though we you know, prefer to identify by our tribal status. Um, uh, <laughs> you know, there's so many different steps that come in here. And so how long does it take? Oh, man, it's honestly, every case within Indian country is different. Every single one, it can last like, you know, I, I can't even say, but it's in the years, like years, one year to like, I've seen some to go within the probate process after they're submitted to the Office of Hearings and Appeals. It can last four, five, six, ten years, depending on um, the case and their situation, their um, heirs, their their land. Um, you know, there's a bunch of different things that go into a probate case, like there's claims, you know, debt that people can file onto um, a probate case. And then there's also, um, you know, just the way us as Indian people live, like we, like for adopt, like adoptions, for example, that's one thing that I've noticed is also difficult is when someone is adopted or they adopt children out or they say, well, I adopted this, my niece or nephew, but there's no record of it. and um, just to verify things like that is hard because a lot of the time when children were um, in the system before like the, um, like the, I can't remember the name of it. It's the children, um, Indian children. Uh, Indian Child Welfare Act. Yeah, yeah. Before that was implemented, a lot of children were lost in the system. So to try and track children down um, prior to that being implemented is a whole different monster in itself. Um, but sometimes we do get um, information, but a lot of the times the state doesn't have records of it or have records of the legal adoption or their name prior to that or um, that's just one example that can hold up a case. And also you can appeal a case from a judge. So let's say my, my case that I submitted went to the judge, we had a probate hearing. The judge um, has to issue a probate order to all heirs or anyone that is listed as an interested party. And after that, you have 30 days from the date of the order to appeal it. If you don't agree with what the judge has written, you have that right to appeal. And this is one part I notice a lot of families aren't aware of um, 
because they just like, okay, it's over, it's done. And then they sit and think about it later on months after. And they're like, I don't agree with that. I don't think it should have went that way. Well, it's kind of, it's too late um, in this case because you're off, it's step nine on this uh, flow chart. It says, after the judge's decision or on rehearing in, is issued, you have 30 days from the decision mailing mailing date to file an appeal. And so with that being said, um, if there was no interested party filings as a request to an appeal, um, then the, the order stands. It will be as written. So that's number 10. Um, and then the land will be updated according to the, um, the judge's decision. And there's basically no going back in a way. Um, you can file, families can file um, an appeal or reopening of the case based off of um, certain, if they feel like they have been, I guess, gypped or they weren't an interest, interested party to begin with or something on legal terms that can reopen the case and the judge can re look at it. Um, but this is the very crucial part I like to tell people once they receive the decision um, for their loved one is step nine and 10 of this case. Um, if they don't agree with what the judge has decided they need to voice their opinion. And I feel like a lot of times they don't know where to turn. In my case, I have to be neutral. I can't help families based off of what they want to do. They might have to, they just have to write into the judge's office. All the information are on the um, decisions. And that is one part I really wish people would look and read. I know a lot of legal terms for um, for our Indian people are confusing. They like to be just black and white, just be, or have someone interpret it to them. And uh, I feel a lot of the legal language in these situations confuse people. Um, it's almost like right, reading fine print when you when you sign like buy a car or something, the fine print. That's kind of what it reminds me of. But the, these are the things that I wish people would have knowledge about. They can appeal, they have that right to voice their opinion, their concern to the judge, if not in the probate hearing, then in this appeal process. It does, um, you know, what you brought up about, you know, people not agreeing with the decision and looking at the very, um, you know, the graph and the process, it does make me think about family structures and how a federal government mm -hmm. institution might have their views about how a family is structured compared to how we as natives structure our family um, with adoptions mm -hmm. or even um, stepchildren, you know, you know, people that might not mm -hmm. be viewed that way. Um, and then when, of course, when you add the complexity of, um, of, of government oversight, you know, for people that are non-native that have never had to deal with these kind of things, the federal government oversees 
a number of uh, tribal decisions. They're at our government meetings that are actually closed door and we still vote by hand. Um, you know, I've been in court proceedings where this information has come up and people are like, that, that's only at those meetings. I'm like, they can, the federal government can subpoena any of those records and they'll just read off what so-and-so saying and what so-and-so said, if they were mad about their, mm -hmm. I don't want to, I don't want to give any specifics, but if they're mad about something, then that's a red and that's a uh, uh, federal government has insight over that. They have insight over, you know, I know we're talking about deaths and things like that, but people managing their land. So in a non-native uh, environment, if you have land and you want to lease it to somebody for growing some plants or things like that for agriculture, you know, that could be just directly, you know, handled maybe even through a real estate agent or something like that. Um, but in native and tribal communities, if the, the, having the trust land status, having that status means that you have a federal government oversight and the complexity comes in is if there's multiple landowners on that acreage. Um, sometimes I'm not sure how many is the mo who has the most uh, landholders, but you know usually it's numerous family members uh, that are involved mm -hmm. in every single step of the decision, along with the federal government. So um, I definitely uh, agree that it seems complex. There's a number of steps, but it is also good to know you know where the appeal process uh, can come into play. Yes. Um, I just want to open it up to my co-host for any additional insights, reflections, thoughts that are coming up. I, I just have a one, uh, Nicole. I'm curious. Uh, in the work that's been going on with the missing and murdered Indigenous women and people, um, the issue of identity uh, has been raised. And it's one that also uh, we're, you know, we're looking at with students as well as well, Native students, how are you eligible for services? And I was glad that you touched on it a bit, but I'm curious uh, what your experiences have been with Native identity and probate issues, because, um, you know, of course, you've probably seen where Native women have been misclassified or misidentified, you know, at their death. So I'm curious about probate kinds of issues as well. And I'm just gonna give one, I'm just thinking about because of the history of assimilation and also Allotment Act, et cetera. Uh, we have people who are listed maybe by uh, such and such a name when reality, the family wants to set it straight. And this is how this person should be identi identified. And this is the name that we want. Have you seen that and I'm curious about any experiences you've had with that. Um, I guess it's, I personally haven't seen anything like that within my time working here, but I know that there has been cases as to where um, people get misidentified or um, they use a different name and it's stuck with them. It's stuck with their case and that they don't go by that anymore. Or, um, they, I, I personally have, haven't touched on that yet, thankfully, you know, because that, that'd be a whole different thing to deal with within the case. 
Well, well thank you because um, that's just a you know, conversation that I've been working on mainly with uh, students. And then we get into child mm -hmm. welfare and students, uh, we, you know, we come across that are part of the foster care as well. And then you, you yeah, and they get different names, yeah. right? And then they get misclassified by the system. You know, these all of these systems that yes. are in place, yes. which then become barriers. And so the intent of this podcast is to help families, you know, through some of these processes as well. So just want to say thank you for the work mm -hmm. that you've been doing. Appreciate it. Thank you, Patsy. Lucia Robin. Got anything, Lucy? I was going to ask a more general question. Okay. Um, so as was mentioned before, um, you are a very big true crime fan or true crime enthusiast. <laughs> and I just wanted to know, yes, is, <laughs> yes. kind of like what do you <laughs> yes. listen to as well as have you ever seen any overlap in being uh, an informed true crime enthusiast and in your job or anything like that have you seen any overlaps um i listen to um my favorite murder and that's part of uh i think it's karen kilgariff and georgia hardstark they're two comedians actually that are into true crime and i've been listening to them for at least three years and then there's another one, um, gosh, it's it's a part of their network, but they, right, their first season was the MMIW case. And there's um, a couple more, I can't remember the names of them. I'll have to just send you guys my uh, library of podcasts I listen to. Uh, but they do, all, there's another podcast, they do the South or the, eastern northeast region of missing people in general uh, murdered and missing people in general um that's a pretty good one too but each season is a certain case uh, one case at a time and i've been reading that on um podcasts they issue a case out and the listeners actually have solved cases for those people that are missing or murdered they have solved cases just based off of following their podcasts. And I think that's amazing. I really like that. And this is totally off topic, but I went to school um, at the University of Idaho for chemistry. I wanted to be a tribal coroner. So our tribe, our tribal communities don't have to go through county coroners and they could have their own within the reservation because we know the importance of having our family members back to us within a certain amount of time. You know, we're on a clock, as they say, as Yakima people, we're on a clock after we pass away. Um, and I, I noticed that based off of situations on um, murdered persons, they don't comply with that because the law, you know, um, government or the state law comes first and they have to do all of their own things. But that's one thing I was, I've always wanted to be was a coroner. And I think that is pretty, pretty radical for, you know, um, someone just to say out loud. I've noticed a couple of times I've said that out loud to elders and they told me 
you're uh you're a woman you're well Indian women or Indian people aren't supposed to touch bodies you should think about that and I felt discouraged honestly uh when I just wanted to help I know that's totally off topic but that's one thing I just wanted to share about myself we are all about uh, random insight and information. <laughs> Again, you know, the setup for this podcast was, you know, let's just pretend we're like at a diner and everybody gets to be a like a fly on the wall. Uh, oh, nice. Okay. Yeah, there so that's we go. kind of our <laughs> feeling. Yeah. So bring it up if it's relevant. Um, I don't know if there's any national native corners. Do any tribes have corners? Real quickly before I i know comanches they have their own funeral home but i don't know if the if they work with the county coroner or you know stuff like that i'm not 100 percent sure okay so we um we have a dream a job disclosure <laughs> i mean there's certainly uh tribal people yakima people that are doctors so i think that we mm -hmm. you know there's definitely protocols that it seems like that could be implemented, you know, alongside all of that information. Uh, mm -hmm. So as I, I close this out, I want to read a, a, a quote from the Bureau of Indian Affairs.gov, which is a guide to help American Indians and Alaska Natives understand the Department of Interior's probate process. Again, Nicole has described how complex all this different information can be. Um, so we want to make sure that you have a resource to go to, a place to go to, to reference um, all the different steps. So when American Indian or Alaska Native passes away and own trust or restricted lands and or trust funds at the time of death, there must be a way of transferring the trust lands or funds to the deceased person's heirs or to whoever is to take ownership under the terms of a will. The Office of Hearings and Appeals will determine what trust lands funds the deceased person owned, determine the deceased person's legal heirs or devisees, and order distribution of the trust or restricted land or funds to the appropriate persons. Again, that's a lot of information. That's why we're so glad to have Nicole here with us to give us more insight, you know, more conversational. Uh, aspects of, you know, this information. Again, uh, I'm Emily Washines, my co-hosts, Robin Pibashi, Lucy Smartlowit, Patricia Whitefoot, and along with guest Nicole Pibashi, who also designed uh, the shirt I'm wearing, and Robin's wearing, and <laughs> and Lucy. <laughs> Our podcast can be streamed at numerous places. Thank you to everybody on YouTube that's watching live and to those that will be uh, listening later. These are edited and produced by Robin Pibishi. Logo by John Only Schellenberger with Native Anthro. And music by Lee Sekekwaptiwa.